0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at KOPN.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is is Diana Moxon. We are taking an interesting journey on this week's show from an era which saw the peak of American self-confidence in the late 1950s to the ebb of the American dream in the early part of the 21st century. Jessica Bruder's non-fiction account of the legion of houseless older Americans who travel a country like nomads in search of seasonal employment is explored in her book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, which was chosen by Daniel Boone Regional Library for this year's One Read programme. Later in the show, Daniel Boone Regional Library's Lauren Williams will be stopping by to talk about the book and this series of one-read events that the library has planned. But first, we go back in time, back to New York's Bowery District in the late 1950s in the studio of abstract expressionist painter Mark Rothko. At that time, Rothko had been commissioned to create a series of paintings for what would become the most opulent and chic dining establishment in New York, the Four Seasons Restaurant in the newly built Seagram's Building on Park Avenue. Rothko at that time was described as a combative person with an adversary view of human nature. He was bitter about being considered an art world outsider for most of his career, but now that he was an insider, he felt compromised and contaminated. This period of his life is the cradle for John Logan's play Red, which opens at Talking Horse Theatre tonight. A Two-character biographical drama starring my two guests today, actors Adam Bretzky and Aaron Crowitz. Welcome to the show, Adam and Aaron. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. I think you've both (laughs) been here before. Thank you, Diana. So, Mark Rothko is a fabulously complex and conflicted character. His biographer, James Breslin, talks about his intense desire for success, his guilt about success, his inability to compromise. And his compromises, his tendency to isolate himself and his wish for community, his mixed feelings about wealth and poverty, his suspicions about others and himself, his vulnerability to despair, and his frustration at trying to find suitable homes in the real world for what he considered almost sacred paintings. So, Aaron, this is not a role you take on lightly. How much research went into preparing for this play?
1: Well, quite a bit. I read his biography. I've read uh, his son has published compilations of his letters and some of his talks and speeches. Mainly, I was at when uh, Vicki Wilson actually suggested that I might want to see uh, do this play. She saw it at the Rep in St. Louis. I read it uh, and this was five, six years ago. I said, I'm going to do this play. If it kills me, which it has, <laughs> and I'm very interested in art, as my friends know, and so it just seemed like a natural. And then I had that to, took me years to get to get a crew together that made uh, that made sense. Addison uh, Myers and I did a number of plays together, but we're both too old to be Ken, so we needed to break out of that. And luckily. <laughs> adam agreed to be ken he's done a a terrific job and it's very not me and uh so you know last year i did tuesdays with maury and these are about as different two different characters as as you could uh, as you could imagine but of course that's a challenge if you're trying to be some kind of an actor
0: are you a fan of rothko's work
1: I am. I always have liked Rothko's work. I won't claim to have understood it as well as I uh, I think I do now. I think the whole cast and crew now is interested in Rothko, and they're looking and they're seeing things in it, even the ones we have in the studio. And so, yes, I think he was a marvelous artist. We like, uh, Nicky and I like color field uh, painting. He was a color field uh, abstract expressionist. And his work is uh, breathtaking to look at. Uh, I brought in for you to look at his catalog resume, which I recently bought. And he did hundreds of these things, mostly luminous, but he turned dark about the time of the play, actually. And so uh, he changed. But yes, I think he was, although a pain in the neck, he was a terrific artist.
0: Adam, the play opens in Rothko's studio and we are introduced to your character, Ken, who is just starting his new job as Rothko's assistant. Tell us about Ken.
2: Yeah, so Ken is, uh, you know, where where Rothko is sort of biographical look at at this character, Ken is a fictionalized version of Rothko's real assistants. He's kind of used as a a tool to uh, bounce the ideas off at Rothko and then eventually turn them on. So when we first are introduced to Ken, here's a, a kid right out of school that... Gets this dream job of working for a a world-renowned artist, thinking that he's going to be able to develop his own career, he's going to be able to develop his own artistic sensibility. And, of course, right off the bat, Rothko tells him that really what he's going to be doing is whatever busy work he can find, including, but not limited to, picking up cigarettes, picking up food, and cleaning floors.
0: He's the errand boy.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so it's very much like what I imagine an unpaid internship would be like now. (laughs) So Ken really goes on quite the journey because what we are seeing in the play is a a two-year span of Rothko's career, but also the beginning of Ken's career. They make very certain to say that Ken is also an artist, although we never get to see his work. So the audience is left to wonder what sort of... Lessons he's taking away from Rothko because as the play develops we quickly realize that Ken has heard every word that Rothko has said.
0: Have you thought about what your work might look like?
2: I have. Um, you know, there, there are some allusions. I don't want to give anything away right now as to what Ken paints. But I imagine if you're very interested in the abstract expressionist paintings that you probably have your own abstract art in your mind. Of course, this is also the dawning of pop art which, as, as we go on in the play about the happy, bright colors of things like soup cans and comic books. So I imagine that there's quite a bit of sensibility there, too.
0: Aaron, the whole play is based on a real-life episode in Rothko's life. Tell us more about this period of Rothko's life and his state of mind at that time.
1: Well, Rothko did not start painting his floating rectangles until his mid-40s. He did surrealist, expressionist work. It was realistic. It was kind of weird looking, but uh, he was, he was uh, well regarded by his fellow artists, but he was financially, uh, you know, commercially, he was not being successful. And he concluded at some point in the 40s that he could not express what he really wanted by using figurative art. And so he abandoned any semblance of reality and became completely abstract and maintained that he wanted to represent human emotion and feelings. And uh, that's what he did for the rest of his career. And so once he did this, he became a huge success. And therefore, in the 50s, when they were building the uh, Four Seasons restaurant in the Seagram building, they asked him, to, they went to him, he didn't lobby for it in any way, uh, they, and asked him if he would provide paintings for the restaurant, basically, to decorate the restaurant. Of course, that's not how Rothko saw it. And Rothko agreed, and he agreed for one very specific reason. He believed passionately that his art should be shown in rooms that had nothing but his art and that it surrounded and engulfed the viewer. Well, the restaurant, you know, putting art on the walls of the restaurant sounded like that was a good idea. But he was not silly enough to protect himself, so the contract that he wrote allowed him to get out of this commission at any time for any reason because I think deep down he had uh, trepidation about what, what he was getting into. Ken, of course, saw this immediately. He says, what the what the heck are you doing? It's a restaurant, for God's sake. Well, Rothko stuck with it. In fact, of course, uh, ultimately, the Rothko Chapel in Houston becomes the great example of his defining space. And uh, it's a marvelous place. If you haven't uh, bid, you should go. So he launched into this project, and he made 40, about 40 paintings. He was going to select six or seven. To go in, he knew the exact dimensions of the space and so on. they would work together. It was the first time he had painted a series that w- were in- deliberately intended to relate to one another and so he worked uh, feverishly on this for for two years and it was a huge commission he got thirty five thousand dollars for this commission, which at the time was a huge amount of money
0: but despite this success he wasn't a happy
1: person he was not a happy person now, you summed it up I thought very nicely in your introduction he thought he should get credit when he got credit he was uncomfortable with it he was a non- very unsettled man he was brought to the US at the age of 10 He immigrated from what was then uh, Russia it was now I, I forget Latvia when. yeah, Latvia. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he was, he felt displaced by this move. He never felt totally comfortable here. He excelled in school. He went to high school. He got into Yale. He went to Yale. He dropped out after two years to go into art. And he struggled along with that until he hit on this idea. And he always. Uh, He had many friends in the art world. He would be very close to them. Then they would have some kind of a theoretical dispute, and then he would break off from them. He was a nuisance in many ways.
0: Now, although there are only two of you in the play, I think the third character in the play is the art Mm -hmm. that you have on the walls. Now, obviously, you don't have millions of dollars to go out and buy Rothko's to furnish the set. So talk a little bit about there's a whole licensing issue around recreating Rothko works. Talk about the art in the show, Adam.
2: The art, as you mentioned, is incredibly important. And one thing at the theater that we did to uh, make sure that the art gets the focus that it deserves is we've uh, we've changed the seating in the theater. So normally when you come into Talking Horse, it's in what we call the proscenium setup, where you have the risers and you come in past the stage and then everybody sits on the same side. This time it's in a thrust configuration. So we have audience on three sides of the stage. And all all around the audience we've got pieces of art part of the licensing agreement uh, to your question we were allowed we had to purchase additional rights to recreate representations of Rothko paintings so all around the stage we have all these different representations of Rothko like paintings our painter Julie humans who also did a lot of the scenic design and is responsible for the empty uh, Canvases that we paint throughout the show. Uh, she did a lot of the creation of those Rothko works, uh, spent almost the entire year working on those paintings. But it's pretty fantastic because you really do feel in the audience that you're enveloped by all this wonderful Rothko-like art.
0: And after the show... <laughs> You don't get to keep the paintings.
2: no, right? that's right. Part of the uh, part of the agreement when we took out this this license to recreate these pictures is that we have to destroy the paintings after the show is completed. We have like two weeks to do so.
0: even though none of them are painted on canvas, and as Julie Eumann said, nobody would mistake <laughs> these for actual Rothko's, but still right. they have to all be destroyed.
2: right that's right <laughs>
0: So the play wastes no time with any preamble. The first line of the play is, what you see as Rothko asked Ken to comment on one of his paintings it's a really simple question but it is key to the whole play and to who Rothko is so it's really an absolutely crucial line Erin talk about the process of not just getting the tone of voice right for that line but getting that delivery to the point where it can be nothing else that must that one line must have taxed you for a long time
1: it did. Every, uh, every line taxes me. But, <laughs> but this, getting the voice tone in a part is, is a lot of the play, and getting started is a lot of the play. Early, the early minutes of any play set down the character and are difficult, for, both for the, for the actors, I think, and for the uh, audience. So I had to define the kind of bold, overpowering uh, attitude i'm trying to establish that i'm in charge you know what do you what do you see and uh you know why do you what do you think what is uh, what is this me it's really in ex- in large part an excuse for me to expound on what he sees of course because he he can't get a word you know, edgewise in fact as i look over the first scene he's uh he says uh and and yes and i say a page of this and a page of that it's amazing <laughs> So it's an incisive comment, uh, trying to get the tone right. I didn't want to shout, but I wanted to be loud, uh, you know, without being offensive and silly sounding. And uh, hopefully I've kind of achieved that, but I, that's certainly what I'm after. There's a tendency in this part, and because I've watched some of the regional theater things on YouTube, to start yelling and that he, he does his share of yelling through the script, but at, at very pivotal times, you know, strategic times. He, he doesn't, his normal tone is not yelling. It's, it's very, you know, I'm the boss here. I know what this means. I know everything about I know what's important in art history, and I now am going to tell you whether you ask me or not.
2: <laughs>
0: there are so many emotions that run through it, And when I read the script, the one that seemed to be the biggest takeaway with me was that he was just angry. He was angry the whole time. But there's also this despair and this frustration and this hope and there's all sorts of things mixed in. What do you feel is the predominant emotion of the play?
1: I think that he's conflicted about this project is what I think. He sees it as a great opportunity. It's his first murals that interact with one another. He gets his own space, but it's a restaurant. He's getting a lot of money. As Adam pointed out, he's, uh, you know, he kind of poo-poos money, and yet he's getting this huge, the biggest commission in the history of art. And this is all weighing on him. You know, did he make the right decision?
0: Adam, as Ken, you are the recipient of all of those emotions that are floating around. How do you experience Rothko?
2: You know, it's different every night, of course. But really, the the trick is, and I, I think you've kind of hit a... Uh a major acting point is that when you're in a scene with somebody and you not, you don't have the words or the lines you still have to be an active participant on stage and so there's a lot of listening that I do and so as I'm listening to Aaron give these Rothko monologues and just speeches about what art means to him and what this project means to him I'm listening for new things that come up throughout the night you know whether it is uh, what's the overlying emotion here is it anger is it frustration is it depression And then what is he saying by not saying anything? And so that then informs when I do get a chance to speak, even if it's just a line like, yes. (laughs) It informs how I say that, yes. It's all about what, what Aaron gives me that night that then informs what I do next.
0: At the outset, Rothko makes it clear to Ken what he is not. He says, I am not your rabbi. I am not your father. I'm not your shrink. I'm not your friend. I'm not your teacher. He spends a lot of time... Lecturing Ken, though, right. as if he was his teacher. Right. So, talking as Ken, how do you feel about your boss?
2: Well, I think it's one of those interesting things that, uh, and I, I'm sure we've all had this experience that you're working with somebody that's clearly brilliant, but they're also just a, a pain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I radio edited myself there. <laughs> uh, I, I think we've all had that experience. Um, so, Ken is absorbing all this information and and using that for his own work. But then at the same time, he's also picking up on on these subtleties. Again, going back to what I was saying about what he's saying by not saying it. So there are these speeches where he just goes on and on about why other artists are wrong and why he's right. And really what that is, is it's a layer of vulnerability. He's putting up a wall and hiding behind that, and especially as we get later into the play, Ken just cuts right through all of that and goes straight to the heart of the matter.
0: But Rothko believes that he is better than everyone else. It's not he's not testing the waters by asking Ken. I mean he truly believes he's better than everybody else, doesn't he?
1: I think he he believes deeply in his art. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the uh, kind of subtle points of the play, I think, is that he, Rothko develops a real respect for Ken. He likes it when Ken talks back to him. That becomes clear toward the end. And even though he uh, heaps scorn on him while he's sending him out after the commission ends, he's giving him really good advice, and he wants him to do something... New And he wants him to do something that will displace Rothko. He understands this process. The most fascinating part of the plot, I think, is that uh, in the beginning, Rothko makes clear that the abstract expressionists made cubism passe. Mm-hmm. You can't do cubism.
0: They stomped it to uh, death. They,
1: we stomped it to death. And at the end, pop art is coming onto the scene, and Ken, of course, appreciates exactly what's going on here. Pop art is supplanting abstract expressionism.
2: And although Rothko rails against this, he understands that that's right. Well, and I think to to your point of Rothko believing that he's better than everyone else, I don't think if you ever ask any creator of any type, any artist, if they are the best ever, of course, they're going to tell you yes, because they have to they have to appreciate their work. But almost every creator that I know always has that voice in the back of their head that says, what if I have it wrong? And what if they have the right perspective? And I've been wrong this whole time. And I think we see a lot of that in Rothko.
1: Now Rothko pays great respect throughout the play to Rembrandt mm-hmm. and Michelangelo and Matisse and so on. I mean he but I mean, he views these people as, as uh, you know, evolving through the history of art to the point where he now sees the path. You know. Nevertheless, he, ha- he shows great respect for them. He never heaped scorn on other artists, you know, other famous artists.
0: On basically the grandfather generation, but he, he doesn't care for the, the father generation, the cubism generation.
1: Well, that's right. He's very respectful of his, of his co-abstract expressionists. Jackson Pollock figures prominently in the play, but he dumps all over, of course, the pop artists, you know, Andy Warhol. He is beneath his contempt. I mean, is, how can you even look at this stuff? <laughs> Soup cans, I mean, come on.
0: So, although the play is totally about Rothko and all his insecurities and his conflicts, and Ken, really, you're kind of a foil. Yeah. To him, you, yeah. He bounces ideas off you. You give him alternate views of the world. But in, in the third scene, Ken reveals something from his past, which is a, an intense scene for you. But I don't really get how it adds to the sum of the play. Why do you think Logan gave you that backstory.
2: You know, I think largely that that's due to the fact that he needed Ken, the assistant, to be a well-rounded character and not just an exposition device. You know, we need to feel that both of these characters occupy this space and time and each has their own path and pain and and backstory. And without that, Ken very quickly would disappear into that guy that used to work with Rothko.
0: I guess so. It, it seems very... A very intense
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and dramatic component of the play but it doesn't really then get explored too terribly much.
2: Not a lot you know there's a few lines that reference it and um, you know obviously we're dancing around it so you should come and see the show (laughs) Uh, but I think it's important because one of the things that that triggers this memory that you're talking about is what color means. And there's a lot of conversation about what a color means in an abstract painting. Rothko, of course, has an obsession with the color black. And then we find out in this scene that Ken has an obsession with both the color white and red. Hence the title of the show but what red means can be a variety of things for one person it can be hope and for another it can be violence
0: which leads us into a little scene we're going to do from the play (laughs) perfect timing adam this is from scene two where rothko asks ken to comment on a painting asking him what it needs ken says red
1: i don't even know what that means What does red mean to me? You mean scarlet? you mean crimson, you mean plum, mulberry, magenta, burgundy, salmon, carmine, carnelian, coral, anything but red. What
2: is red? I meant sunrise. Sunrise? I meant the red at sunrise, the feeling of it. Oh, the feeling of it. What do you mean, the feeling of it? I didn't mean red paint only. I meant the emotion of red at sunrise. Sunrise isn't red. Yes, it is. I'm telling you, it's not. Sunrise is red, and red is sunrise. Red is heartbeat. Red is passion. Red wine, red roses, red lipstick, beets, tulips, peppers. Arterial blood. That, that too. Rust on the
1: bike on the lawn. And apples? and tomatoes. Resident firestorm at night. The sun in Rousseau. The flag in Delacroix. The robe in El Greco. A
2: rabbit's nose. An albino's eyes. A parakeet. Florentine marble. Atomic flash.
1: Nick yourself shaving blood in the barbersol. The
2: ruby slippers. Technicolor that phoned to the Kremlin on the president's desk. Russian flag. Nazi flag. Chinese flag. Persimmons. Pomegranates. Red light district. Red tape. Rouge. Lava. Lobsters. Scorpions. Stop sign. Sports car. A Blush. Viscera. Flame. Dead
1: Phoebus. Traffic lights. Titian hair. Slash your wrists. Blood in the
2: sink. Santa Claus. Satan. So red. Exactly.
0: Love it. So Rothko was always very ambivalent, as we've said, about the Seagram's commissions. In some ways, it gave him validity, a place in the pantheon of contemporary artists, but he also felt like he was selling out. He's quoted as saying, I hope to ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who ever eats in that room. He wanted to fill the room with paintings that would make the fat cat diners feel like they are trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up. Having spent weeks rehearsing this role and living Rothko's inner life, do you feel like you understand him now?
1: I understand him better than I did but do I understand him I would never I would never uh, say so because if I said anything to him about oh you mean Bob it's kind of like Ken every time Ken says something you, Rothko says no you got you know it's not that but yes I think I do understand him do
0: you have empathy for him maybe yeah.
1: and I have empathy
2: for him I do yeah Grapple with them, yes. Argue with them, always. But don't think you understand them.
0: <laughs> That's a quote from the play. It sure is. <laughs> so this is technically not a talking horse theater play, but produced by Minimal Art Productions, which is, is at your company, yes. Aaron. And have you got other things lined up?
1: No. <laughs> I do these as they come along. Uh, we did The first thing we did was the first version of art, which we did as a fundraiser for ragtag when it was still in its original uh, setting on on 10th Street, I needed an A.U. when you apply for rights, you have to put in who you are. And at that time, Willie Wilson and Fred Von Saal and uh, Mike Porter and Barry Gaynor were in a, a music group called Minimal Art. So I just said, I wrote in Minimal Art Productions. I couldn't think of anything else. And I've used it ever since, all the shows that Addison and I together.
0: Well, my thanks to my guest today, Talking Horse Productions artistic director and actor Adam Bretzky and actor Aaron Crowett. Their production of the John Logan play Red opens at Talking Horse Theatre tonight and runs for two weekends. You can buy tickets online at talkinghorseproductions.org or by giving them a call at 573-607-1740 and tickets cost $15. Thank you so much, Adam and Aaron.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Diana.
0: You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 18th. 9.5 FM KOPN Columbia and after a short break I'll be chatting to Lauren Williams, the One Read coordinator for the Daniel Boone Regional Library and we'll be chatting about this year's One Read book, Nomadland by Jessica Bruder. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. There have always been itinerants, drifters, hobos, restless souls. But now in the third millennium, a new kind of wandering tribe is emerging. People who never imagined being nomads are hitting the road. They're giving up traditional houses and apartments to live in what some call wheel estate. Vans, secondhand RVs, school buses, pickup campers, travel trailers and plain old sedans. They are driving away from the impossible choices that face what used to be the middle class. Some call them homeless, but the new nomads reject that label equipped with both shelter and transportation they've adopted a different word they refer to themselves quite simply as houseless they pick raspberries in vermont take tickets at nascar races guard the gates of texas oil fields run concession stands at rodeos maintain hundreds of campgrounds and trailer parks across the country bring in the annual sugar beet harvest and are frequently part of amazon's camper force team of seasonal workers Over a period of three years and 15,000 miles, journalist Jessica Bruder travelled the country following this seasonal workforce of older Americans, collecting their compelling stories about how they had become transient Americans. Her fascinating book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, is this year's Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read book. And here to tell us more about the book and the schedule of events that is planned is the library's adult and community services manager and One Read coordinator, Lauren Williams. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for choosing Jessica Bruder's Nomadland this year. I probably wouldn't have gravitated towards Mm -hmm. it, but I'm so glad that I did. So tell us a little bit more about the journey the
3: book takes us on. Sure. Well, first I have to correct you and say that the community chose it. <laughs> so the community was had made a very good choice Thank this you, year community. with their voting, yes. Um, and I, like you, it's not something I necessarily would have picked up. I gravitate towards fiction. But this is a work of really immersive journalism. And I feel like we've seen a lot of this type of writing come out in the last maybe decade or so, where it's not strict reporting. It's really the author does such deep research that they kind of inhabit, or at least try to, the life of the people that they're profiling. So Bruder does follow a few subjects pretty closely and tells their story as a way to really highlight what this life is like um, in a pretty intimate scale. And then she herself, buys a van and spends several months and drives 15,000 miles and does work for a stint in Amazon, does work for a few days at a beet harvest to just see how brutal the work is. And, and she goes to the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous, which is a gathering that these traveling workers have kind of created. It's kind of a, a community, a family of choice they've created. So she goes there and interviews them to really get to know their stories beyond the surface level that you might get from a three-minute piece on the radio or um, one article why should people read this book? Well, I think, first of all, because everyone else is reading it, then you have something to talk about in the grocery store line and and with your uh, book club or your friends and family. But I, I think they should read this book because this is a phenomenon before I read it, and I've heard this from other people, was largely invisible to me. And now, whenever I see a white van or I see a vehicle that kind of has curtains drawn or something like that, I think, is that somebody who is using that car as their home. So it, you know, it makes me think um, very consciously about where I'm purchasing things, um, the nature of work about, you know, why is it that we believe in this American dream and this social contract, where if I work really hard, and I, you know, I can save up and I can have a house and I will have a retirement where I get to travel and not work for a while, that we are all it feels like kind of one health crisis or unexpected divorce or another recession. And suddenly we're upside down in our mortgage. We're one crisis away from having to make a choice like this. And so there's retirement is not it's a big question mark for many of us. And I think um, reading this really brings those issues to light and makes us talk about it as a community. What are we doing here locally to help support each other? What does our future look like? What kind of response have you had so far to the book on the early book discussions that have already taken place? Um, They've been pretty wide ranging. We kicked off our first book discussion here in Columbia was with the mayor, which was fun to do because people had questions about what are our rules about sleeping in a parking lot? And what is the issue of affordable housing here and and homelessness here? Um, So we got to talk about some of those things. We also talked about our naivety about when you order something from Amazon. One woman said, "I thought this was, um, I imagined robots and you know robot arms going and selecting the item out of a bin and putting it in a box and sending it to me. I did not think about the people who are walking on concrete for twelve hours a day, being given free painkillers for hourly wage, who are making this possible for me, and what effect that has." here locally. And and Mayor Treece did talk about that, about the decline in sales tax. Um, If you buy something from Amazon, you're not paying that local tax to our local businesses. So it was pretty wide ranging. And then we talked about, could we do this? What would it be like if we were forced to make this choice? And what would we make of that choice? So it's been pretty interesting. I know I grew up with an expectation that I would
0: have a period of my life that I called retirement. Mm -hmm. But really that idea barely existed for our grandparents and looking into the future, it now seems like such a flimsy concept. A survey that came out earlier this year, which she cites in the book, says that the chief retirement fear for 49 percent of Americans is running out of money, so outliving Mm -hmm. their money. But I'm guessing that for many in the millennial generation, the idea of retirement is nothing more than a fairy tale anyway, something that happened in the olden days. So tell me, I'm interested in the different responses you've had to the book from younger age groups. Mm -hmm.
3: They're not that surprised by this, whereas maybe people in their 50s are are shocked more. Well, you know, I can't really... speak to that because most of my conversations have been with people who are my age, middle age, and older, who I think can see themselves in this way. But I do think there likely is, um, and of course I work with some younger people at the library, that you think about minimalism and you hear in the news about crippling student loan debt, millennials putting off buying houses, having families, because they cannot afford it. So I think that's probably a good assumption that it may not be as surprising to them, but I, I can't speak to that directly. I'd be curious to hear some younger opinions
0: mm-hmm. on the book. It certainly gave me sleepless. <laughs> kind of, I'd read the book at night and I'd turn the light out and I'd lie there thinking about mm-hmm. the solidity of my bed in my house, in my community, and thinking what it would feel like to suddenly have that taken away, what seems like such a solid foundation. Right. It's just turning to kind of quicksand under my feet. And how it is just, like you say, it's just one event. It's one huge health bill. Right. Or losing your job or something else going wrong. And suddenly, where where do you live? There's no safety
3: net. Right, right. And that that is terrifying. But I, I also want to say that you know, when Bruder herself goes and and experiences this life and then comes back to her New York apartment, she has this weird period of adjustment where her apartment, which I'm sure is small, feels too big and she misses the people and she misses being on the road. So it is terrifying, but also there are aspects of this book that feel, it feels very American to me, this sort of, we're going to make the best of it, resilience and um, creativity of these folks. So there's also that piece of the book that is really a bit hopeful in a very dire situation because I, you know, I, it is a crisis. Um, I feel like this highlights A crisis that's rumbling under the surface or coming up to the surface uh, for many of us. But there's also this aspect of what's next. So what do we do?
0: And she talks about how this has a precedent that in the 1930s during the Great Depression, millions of Americans took to the road. They lost their homes and they became a traveling workforce, traveling all over the country. But there was always an idea that there was an end to it. Yes. they were getting through a period, and they would go back to brick and mortar. Whereas the modern nomad mm-hmm. group don't see that. This is for life. Right. This is until they die in their van.
3: Yes, and that there's uh, some pretty eye-opening statements that some of them make. When she says, "What is your long-term plan?" or "What is your retirement from this plan?" and it's very grim. It's, it is. It's the drive out to the desert and shoot myself. Like if I get too sick to work, or you know, something happens. I'm just, you know, put me on the ice flow, kind of the equivalent of that just I'm, I, you know, I I'll probably just die because there's no, it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable for many of these folks.
0: You mentioned Amazon. And that that features quite prominently in the book and how they rely to a large extent on this elderly workforce. And I think Jeff Bezos had said that he figured a quarter of the people on the road would work at one of his warehouses. Wow. Be part of camper force Mm -hmm. at some point, you know, during their time. And it did leave me conflicted about my relationship with Amazon. I've always been slightly conflicted. Mm -hmm. But my overwhelming response was, I don't ever want to shop at Amazon again. But at the same time, you realize how many people are reliant Right. On this move in our consumerism. And that if we all stopped shopping at Amazon, wh- who would employ? I mean, where would all of these people get work? And they, I looked on their website and they pay their workers $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. They provide campsite expenses, they provide assignment bonuses, so they can make a good chunk of money in this kind of awful three months, right. 12 hours a day, walking 15 miles on hard concrete, like you say, getting right. free ibuprofen and painkillers <laughs> to help them get through it. There's a little passage in the book I was going to read which talks about some of the conditions. It says, this is from Pennsylvania, when summer temperatures exceeded 100 degrees inside the company's Braningsville, Pennsylvania warehouse, managers wouldn't open the loading bay doors for fear of theft. Mm -hmm. Instead, they hired paramedics to wait outside in ambulances ready to extract heat-stricken employees on stretchers and in wheelchairs, the investigation found. Workers also said they were pressured to meet ever greater production targets, a strategy colloquially known as management by stress. Amazon monitors productivity in real time, analyzing data from networked scanner guns that employees use as they move and sort merchandise. It just kind of sounds pretty hellish. It does. It's really inhumane. But they say, you know, you just got to kind of knuckle down and get on with it and just get through the next
3: five minutes and it's only going to be for a short period of time and no whiners here. No, I know. And when Jessica Ruder herself works there for a while, she talks about those rope. There's a field of robots that kind of, there are robots that bring items for them to scan and have the same ones kept coming back and just like bumping into her. And and she's scanning the same thing again and again. And it just became absurd. So one of my favorite people in the book, I think, is Bob Wells. Mm -hmm. Who pops up frequently? He's a dispenser of practical
0: advice and he's kind of a philosophical guru of the nomadic community. He founded the website cheaprvliving.com. He runs one of the big annual meetups that you mentioned, the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous in Quartzsite, Arizona, where he gives classes on things like stealth parking
3: and mentally preparing for living in your van. Mm-hmm. I love Bob. I do too. Looks like Santa Claus. I don't know if you looked online I any did pictures. Look online. And he, yeah, he just he is a guru. That's a great name for him. Just sharing as much information to make this lifestyle possible for folks. And I, the librarian of me loves that, like the sharing of, you know, this is what I know, I'm going to share it with you and give it away freely. I, the, the generosity of these folks who have so little is pretty inspiring. In preparing for this, and you always do a great job getting people together for different talks, but have you found
0: anybody who is living like this in our community who
3: is part of this nomadic group. Yes, there is a a man locally, he actually came in to check his email using the library computers and a staff member just happened to strike up a conversation with him and when she found out, when he mentioned he'd been living in his truck for three years and he's working here locally for a while, she said, can we have your, can we have your name and email address and and phone number? And he actually is going to be on our panel um, that we're doing on the 18th at the library that David Lyle moderates. So we have, you know, we'll have an economist, we'll have someone who's going to be talking about the nature of retirement and aging, but then we're going to have this gentleman come in and speak just about his experiences living in his vehicle for the last three years and what kind of work he's doing and what it's like for him. It's been tricky to try to find someone because they are so itinerant. I had lots of email conversations with people who are living in a converted bus or who are living this life, but they're in Colorado or New Mexico, or they're just not going to be anywhere close and couldn't commit. So I'm very pleased that the universe gave us someone, uh, Richard is his name, that he's going to be here on the 18th. Did he give you a sense of whether he's alone here or there are a community and there are others? It seemed like it was just him that was working in this particular place where he's working. But um, I, the Missourian also did an article on someone who's working at one of the hospitals as a some kind of medical technician and he is doing it to save money I think to eventually purchase a house. So he's doing it by choice because he can live very cheaply and he has a very good career but you can go work on contract different places so it's allowed him to see different parts of the country and he's saving up money so he's kind of doing it for a different reason Um, and the gentleman we'll be speaking with um, I think he went through a divorce and he just you know this is what he's doing now and he is on his own here so that was the sense that I got. In populist culture I'm a big fan of The Bachelor. i have to admit it but uh
0: right now no shame right now there's bachelor in paradise and one of the people on the show dean has talked about how he lives in his van and he travels the country and this kind of is his lifestyle Mm -hmm. choice and so it was interesting hearing him say that when i had just you know was in the process of reading the book and one of the other contestants on the show has said what a loser living in his van and I thought, gosh, that is really this is a young person. These are, these are people in their 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and even there with the difficulties that they face, he felt that this was somebody who was a loser because he was living in his van and I just wanted to kind of reach my hand into the TV and have a chat with him. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> has reading Jessica's
3: book altered your view about your old age? I think it has. I mean, I... Like when my husband and I moved here, we moved into a relatively smallish house thinking, well, we'll live here and then we'll move and get someplace bigger. But we like our neighborhood. We like our community. And we're like, why do we think we need more than that? I think it's changed my view about what success is supposed to look like, what you're supposed to have. But we are, you know, both of us saving for retirement. We have we're lucky to have 401ks. We're trying to instill that sense in our kids. You don't spend everything that you make. But we're fortunate because we both have full time jobs with health insurance. We have local family support. So we can. We can make that work, but um, I'm not re- thinking that I will have Social Security. I just don't rely on that. So I'm trying to do as much as I can to save. So that I can have some years where I'm not working, where I can pursue creative opportunities or other things. But it, it makes me think about it more deeply.
0: And what is, again, is shocking in the book is that lots of the people that she talks to are not people who have struggled in life. They're people who did have a six-figure salary. Yes. But for whatever reason, life has taken a downturn. So you can go from feeling incredibly comfortable and solid in your financial situation to living in a van. Yeah. I think that's very true. So each year, the library chooses a shortlist of 10 books mm-hmm. from which you offer the public two to vote on. It's always a great list, but what made Nomad
3: Land rise to the top? I think simply because there are so many topics to discuss, we, that's one of the main criteria we ask our reading panel to to think about is just the range of programming and discussions and films and you know art what we can do around a particular book. So it may be a book that's really entertaining to read, but there's just not a lot of substance to talk about. And this book immediately, I think rose to the top because of all of those, hooks for things so that you know the minimalist living retirement aging travel the we haven't really touched on one of the main characters or subjects linda may wants to build an earthship house so we are going to be doing a panel later in the month on alternative economies green living people who are trying to craft a life that is not you know part of the capitalist system they're trying to kind of get out of the rat race and do something different more sustainable so there's that aspect of it. So there's just so many things to talk about. um, And it really makes this sort of invisible or what is often an invisible topic visible. So we like that as well. So, events for
0: the One Read program kicked off this week. Yes, and tonight is the official opening reception for the
3: One Read art show. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. That show is called Travelers, and so we invited local artists to submit works that evoke journey, that evoke transition. So they can be about travel, literal travel, or travel in nature. Um, so we got—I got to see the show yesterday and be there while the judging was happening. So those winners will get be announced tonight. But it's a really wide range of literal interpretations the roads and mountains and but also some kind of psychological uh, interpretations there's textiles there's photography there's mixed media so there's a lot to explore and think about
0: and that's from six till nine tonight it is part at of Street First studios Friday. yes Street. Street studios and you also have a flash
3: fiction writing contest we do and that is we're asking people to tell a story of transition um, in 250 words or less whatever that means to you so it's that that small container makes it a challenge to develop a story or a character or something in a short amount of time but it kind of creates these sparks of um, creative genius sometimes so we're looking forward to receiving those we'll be taking those submissions through the end of the month at oneread.org or you can if you want to type it up and drop it off at one of the library locations you can do that as well and then um, those will get published on the library's one read website and then the Missourian will also be publishing the winners and we'll be giving bookstore gift cards to winners as well and
0: the program events culminates it actually carries on But the highlight of the program is on September the 24th when Jessica Bruder comes to town. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Sure. She will be speaking at Lawner Auditorium on Columbia College's campus at 7 on Tuesday the 24th, as you said. So she'll talk about the research um, and writing of her book. She'll answer questions from the audience. And then she'll also sign books. And that will be live streamed to our library location in Fulton, the Callaway County Public Library for folks in that area. Um, But it's always wonderful to hear after we have spent a month with the book, you have all these questions. Well, I wonder what happened or I wonder if... what's happening to this person now and so to get to ask those questions of the author is always fun. Jessica Bruder will be on my show next week in fact I'm talking to her this afternoon
0: we're going to record it and then we'll be broadcasting it next week so what else have you got what other discussion groups have you got you've mentioned a couple of them but what else is coming up over the next couple of weeks sure so
3: the panel on the 18th I mentioned with David Lyle that's one of my favorite things and then the alternative living panel that is on September 25th that's actually the day after the author speaks and uh, we'll be talking about that with Dick Dalton that morning on KOPN Um, so that's off the grid living in green economies. And we have folks coming from Dancing Rabbit Eco Village that's, I think, in Western Missouri. And so they are a sustainable living community that is put together up there. So we'll kind of hear about what they're doing. Um, Adam Saunders from the Columbia Center for Urban Agriculture, the kind of farm your yard movement. And then um, Mark Hame will be moderating that. So taking the book as a jumping off point, well, what's, what's an alternative way? What are other solutions besides trying to make it in the capitalist economy and then maybe ending up in your vehicle what are some other things we could be doing so that's that's very fun um there is an immersive journalism panel on september 17th that the columbia Missourian and mu school of journalism are sponsoring and that will be at the reynolds journalism institute and that will be a fascinating look at this technique of writing which i'm looking forward to and great that we have the journalism school here to do that so that's on the 17th at six thirty. what was the other book that was the finalist this year it's called sourdough by robin sloan and it's um it is a fiction it's kind of a almost magical realism it's a young woman who's a coder in San Francisco and really the soul sucking job and she orders takeout from this little restaurant around the corner and they have this wonderful bread and it's a couple of brothers and they end up getting deported and they leave her with their sourdough starter and it becomes this sort of sentient thing and so she makes this bread and there's an underground farmer's market so it's kind of a, a romp it's really fun and we'll be discussing that on our first Thursday book discussion in October if that was people's favorites so a very different book but very fun and kind of an- another critique of our current work life. How close were the votes? I would say it was like a 70-30. It wasn't hugely close. Everyone's people will say, I want a fun book. And so the people who wanted a fun book voted for that one. But I think there was just a recognition that there was a lot more that we could do with Nomadland.
0: Last year, you also had a nonfiction book, Killers at the Flower Moon, yes. by David Graham.
3: How do the responses to fiction versus nonfiction do people like one more than the other? We get people every year who will say, like what we said, well, I wouldn't have normally read this, but I am. I think we get more men, to be honest, when we have a f- nonfiction book. And I don't know what that's about, but we do. But every year, then we have our super fans who just, they'll read whatever it is, which I love. We love that. <laughs> Looking back, which one read has elicited the most response? You know, um, it's bittersweet. I would say it's Bettyville by George Hodgman. Mm. Um, he was, Sorry. <laughs> A local author you know and and he who died tragically recently so people just felt such love and ownership for that book so that was really magical to see i sent that book all over the world oh yeah i did i gave it to everybody (laughs) Um, everybody has a mom everybody can kind of um identify with being a bit of a of an outcast and it was just beautifully written and such a love story to the midwest and his mom and caretaking
0: One of the things I love about the program is how you pull so many different organizations Mm -hmm. and people together to help present and frame the book. So tell us quickly about some of the One Read partners you have this year. There's
3: such a long list. I'm going to leave people out, but um, (laughs) obviously KOPN, you all broadcast the audiobook and have us on shows we love that barnes and noble skylark books hosting discussions the office of cultural affairs or street support all of our arts things the columbia arts league as well and then all of the colleges and universities you know they provide speakers presenters ideas um, so we're very grateful to them uh, mu art and archaeology and ragtag cinema are both showing films it's an embarrassment of riches westminster and william woods and fulton so we have just lots of great great folks helping us out
0: Thank you to my guest, Lauren Williams from Daniel Boone Regional Library. You can find a full schedule of one-read events at dbrl.org and Nomadland author Jessica Bruder will be giving a talk about her book at Columbia College's Lorna Auditorium on Tuesday, September the 24th and she'll also be on my show next week. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. This might be one of the busiest arts weeks of the year. There is so much to do and see. Tonight is First Friday in the North Village Arts District from six till nine. At All Street Studios, they have the Daniel Boone Regional Library One Read Art Exhibit entitled Travellers, and that opens tonight. At Resident Arts, there is an opening reception for Sarah Gwyn's Portrait of a Lady Art Exhibit. Sega Broaddus Gallery has an opening reception for their September exhibit. And down the road at the Columbia Art League, they have an opening reception for The Child Within. That's from six till eight p.m. Meanwhile, in Theatreland, two shows open tonight. Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of the Henrik Ibsen classic play Hedda Gabler opens at the Missouri Theatre. There are only four performances for this show and both tonight's and tomorrow's are sold out. However, I do believe a handful of tickets are still available for both the 2.30 matinee and 7.30 evening show on Sunday. At Talking Horse Theatre, Erin Krawitz and Adam Bretzky star in Red, a Tony Award winning play about abstract expressionist painter Mark Rothko. You can catch Red tonight and tomorrow at 730 plus a 2pm matinee on Sunday and that show continues next weekend at Maplewood Barn it's your last chance to see the hilarious Neil Simon farce rumours the last performances are tonight tomorrow and Sunday at 8 out of town is the final weekend to see Crimes of the Heart at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararok a southern gothic tale of relationships run amok and dreams gone awry there are two performances today and tomorrow at both 2 and 8pm plus a final 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets for that show are $40.00 the Loop Maker Fair is at the new community pop-up park at 807 Business Loop 70 West. And that's from 5 till 7 tonight, featuring local makers, artists, designers and entrepreneurs. The Missouri Jazz Music Festival is at Rose Music Hall tomorrow afternoon and is free to attend. The music starts at three, and featured bands include Loose Loose, The Sons of Brazil, Pacao and his Afro Fusion Orchestra, and many more. More info on that at mojazz.net. Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m., the Museum of Art and Archaeology is showing the film Lady in the Van, starring Dame Maggie Smith, a tie in to the one read book Nomad Land. We Always Swing Jazz series presents its first concert of the season with pianist Peter Martin and Brazilian guitarist Romero Lubambo at Murray's, performing two concerts on Sunday at 3.30 and 7. On Tuesday morning, University of Missouri School of Journalism Professor Emeritus Steve Weinberg will be discussing this year's one-read book, Nomadland, and that's at Barnes & Noble's at the Columbia Mall. That's a free event. And at All Street Studios on Tuesday evening, artist John Fennell and poet Lynn jensen Lampy will be talking about their work as part of All Street's regular Hearing Voices Seeing Visions programme. The event starts at seven and is free to attend. Wednesday evening next week, Daniel Boone Regional Library is screening the Emmy award-winning documentary The Homestretch in the friend's room at 6.30. The film follows three homeless teens as they fight to stay in school, graduate and build a future. Following the screening, Renita Norwood, supervisor of student services and district homeless coordinator with Columbia Public Schools, will host a discussion. Next Thursday, there are three new art exhibits which have their official opening receptions. And actually, you can do them all. Columbia College opens two shows in their adjacent Larson and Hardwick galleries, featuring works by C. Patzia Manella, Fatih Benzer and James Klug. At the Bingham Gallery on the University of Missouri campus, there is an artist reception and talk by Sidney Purcell and Ryan Redcorn. That's from 4.30 to 6.30. And at the Mini Gallery, the Boone History and Culture Centre, a new show entitled Exploration in colour featuring works by John Fennell Jen Wiggs and Scott Patrick Myers runs from 5.30 till 7.30 so you can start at Columbia College at 3 go to the Bingham Gallery and then end up at the Mont Mini Gallery and finally next Thursday in Jefferson City Scene 1 Theatre opens its production of the musical of musicals the musical showtime is seven thirty, and that show runs for two weekends you have been listening to speaking of the arts on 89.5 fm kopn columbia with me diana Moxon, and my good friends and sound engineer mike hagan we'll be back next week with more news views and interviews on the arts in mid missouri stay arty columbia